and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him and began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and mockingly kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. They pressed him into service to bear the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. They divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each one should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, He was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. When the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Shabbatani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion 
who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Stand and sing with me the wonderful cross. Last night our room was lighted by candles because that would have been the atmosphere in which Jesus had gathered with his disciples in the upper room to partake of the Passover feast, at which time he established the Lord's Supper, which we celebrated last night. Last night the cross was empty, and it was adorned with purple because it was awaiting the arrival of royalty. And tonight, the cross also is empty because four hours ago, the body of Jesus Christ was taken down from the cross and placed in a borrowed tomb. Tonight, the cross is draped in black because godless men took that one who not only was the purest being who ever lived, but the very Son of God and crucified him. Here's how Peter described it in Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of of godless men and put him to death. After Jesus had given up the ghost and the body had been taken down from the cross, his disciples scattered. Peter and John evidently went into Jerusalem to a home, probably that of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Thomas, we don't know where he went, but he went somewhere all by himself, alone. The other eight disciples and the women went to Bethany to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and there they remained Friday night and Saturday Tonight, let's enter that house of Bethany. We can imagine that they were rehearsing the horrible things that they had seen that day, trying to make sense of it, and they kept going over and over again the things that Jesus had said while he hung upon the cross. His last words, 
It is difficult, would have been difficult for Jesus to even speak upon the cross. First, because of the horrible things that he had undergone before the crucifixion. And secondly, because of the difficulty of speaking while one was suspended upon a cross. Think of what he endured before he was crucified. One of the most striking verses to me in all of the Bible is John 18:4, in which as Jesus and his disciples were in the garden and they saw the Roman soldiers coming and they were looking for Jesus. And John 18:4 says this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. He made a decision. The Roman flogging to which Jesus was subjected normally consisted of 39 lashes. And that's because the law forbade anyone being lashed more than 40 times. And so those who were, were administering the punishment were always very careful to not go to 41 in case they miscounted, so they would stop at 39. But my, the 39 lashes were horrible. The whip the Romans used was far different from the lash the Jews used. The Roman whip consisted of braided leather. On the end of each strand there was a metal ball, and as the whip was applied, the metal ball bruised the flesh and then finally broke the bruises. The back began to bleed. Pieces of bone were also in the in the strands, and they began to cut the back and cut the back and cut the back until it was shredded. The flogging extended from the shoulders to the upper thighs. The flesh was so shredded that sometimes the spine was exposed. As you well know, many of the Psalms prophesied what would happen to the Messiah. Psalm 129.3 says, The plowman plowed upon my back describing Jesus back after he had received the flogging. It was not unusual for someone to die while being flogged. Because of the excessive loss of blood, many experienced hypovolemic shock, the result of losing so much blood. When that happened, the heartbeat would race, the kidneys would shut down as the body was trying to retain all the fluid possible, blood pressure lowered, and there was tremendous thirst as the body was craving more fluid. And so even before Jesus began his journey to Golgotha, his life already 
was hanging by a thread. Initially, he was forced to carry the patibulum. The patibulum is the cross beam upon his shoulders. But he was so weak, he stumbled, and so a man who had come in from the country for the Passover, Simon of Cyrene, they recruited him and had him carry the patibulum. Simon witnessed the crucifixion, and interestingly, two of his sons became prominent leaders in the early church. One wonders if they were with their father and had witnessed the crucifixion. When they arrived at Calvary, Jesus was placed upon the ground with a patibulum under his shoulders, and nails were driven into the wrists just at the bottom of the hand intersecting the median nerve. One physician describing this said, it's like when one bumps his crazy bone, only the nerve would be pinched by pliers without a let up. Pain was great and there was no word to describe it and so a word was coined. (laughs) And that word is excruciating. That's where we get that word. It means out of the cross. After he had been nailed to the patibulum, it was lifted. And in so doing, his shoulders were dislocated. And of course, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22, which prophetically said, My bones are out of joint. The patibulum then was fitted into a notch in the upright hole and lashed. And then the knees were slightly bent, the feet crossed, and a nail put through the feet. And then sometimes a spike was put through the back of the vertical pole so that the victim could impale his buttocks upon that spike to try to get some relief. You see, the Romans wanted the victim to die slowly and in great pain. Suspended in this fashion, breathing was very difficult. The way one had to breathe was to try to push himself up and inhale and drop back down and push himself up and exhale and drop back down and push himself up and that went on and on and on until finally the person no longer could push himself upward to breathe. When the air in the lungs no longer could be expelled, respiratory acidosis developed, unexpelled carbon dioxide in the lungs, carbonic acid was formed, the heartbeat again became irregular and rapid from hypovolemic shock. 
When that happened, the next thing that happened was the formula of pericardial effusion, that is fluid around the heart, and then pleural effusion, which is fluid around the lungs. And so later when a soldier drove a spear into Jesus' side through the ribs, piercing the lungs and the heart, water and blood came out of the wound. Because one could breathe only by pushing himself upward with his legs, the way to hasten someone's death was to break his legs, which they did to the two thieves later in the day. But be that as it may, we need to realize that it took great effort for Jesus to speak from the cross. He hung upon the cross for six hours before he died. And in those six hours, intermittently, he said six things. Because of the effort it took to speak, it is important for us to pay special attention to what he said. Luke 23, 34 the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is he forgiving? The Sadducees were there. He had touched their money. The Pharisees were there. He'd exposed their hypocrisy. The Herodians were there. Both Jesus and John had exposed the sin of Herod's palace. The zealots were there. They had tried to use Jesus to complete their political aims, and he refused to be their instrument. And these four, which normally hated each other, had come together in a coalition to be a driving force to crucify Jesus. There was a fifth group present, the Roman soldiers, they were obeying orders. They really didn't understand what they were doing. And, of course, there were his disciples and friends. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. The Greek grammar indicates that this was something that Jesus did on an ongoing basis. We wonder if every time someone hurled an insult at Jesus, he might have raised himself, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Could it even have been while they were driving the nails in Jesus' wrist that every time the hammer came down, he might have said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Think of that. He was interceding. For these people who are torturing him. Isaiah foretold that that's what he would do. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded 
for the transgressors. It seems strange that these people could have been mocking Jesus, that they had crucified him since they had seen all the evidences. They had heard his teaching with an authority different from any authority man ever had. There was anointing when he spoke. They had seen his miracles. They had seen lives changed. They even had to acknowledge his respect for the scriptures. And yet, they crucified him. How could it be? Our Lord Jesus Christ, when teaching his apostles about what their future ministry would be like, he said it's like a sower who goes forth to sow, and he sows the seed. Some falls on hard ground, and the seed goes nowhere. Some falls on ground, and the seed quickly springs up but dies because the soil is shallow and it can't have a root. Some springs up and dies because it's choked out by weeds. And, of course, there is good soil. And that was true of Jesus himself. For the seed he sowed in some cases fell on good soil, but in some cases it was hard ground. Paul commented in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blind. It's interesting that Jesus so often spoke of the Pharisees as being blind. They could not see what was right in front of them. One reason Jesus must have said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is because he knew that these taunters were not his real enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Have you ever thought about what Jesus was really asking God to do? Forgive them? He could not have been asking forgiveness for unrepentant men. One must change his heart change his life to be reconciled to God. At least he was asking this, Lord, today do not rain down wrath and destroy these people. At least let them live 40 more days till the day of Pentecost when they can hear the gospel. But there is a truth for you and me to carry out of this. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the example of how to speak ill, or rather speak to those people who have speak ill to us. About 50 years later, Peter presented the example of Christ as the model. Listen to this. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, and no credit to you for that. You get what you deserve. 
But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Father, forgive them. The second statement Jesus made upon the cross was to one of the thieves. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Matthew and Mark both tell us that early on during the crucifixion, both the thief on the left and the thief on the right, they too were mocking Jesus and cursing him, even as the crowd was doing. One reason was they were dying before their time. The Jews wanted Jesus disgraced. And so they would have him crucified between two thieves. This was Friday, Passover week. They would not be crucifying people. But because they wanted Jesus disgraced, they hurriedly grabbed two thieves and crucified them. They died early before normally they would have been crucified. They were cursing Jesus. Look what you have done to us. We, we're, we're being killed before our time. We're being mocked by people. We cannot die in private. But something happened. As time passed, one of the criminals found himself strangely moved by this mysterious person who was dying beside him. You wonder, had he ever heard Jesus teach? You wonder, had he ever seen a miracle? We don't know. But at one point, he began to say to the other thief, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly were receiving what we deserve, this man has done nothing wrong. Then turning to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Startling, isn't it? Startling. What happened to this thief? There are six things we can say about him. He was repentant. He acknowledged his sin. He considered Jesus to be the Messiah. He called him Lord. He made a public confession of faith. He appealed to Christ for salvation to the degree he understood what that meant. And Christ promised to save him. And Christ promised to take him with him that day. Jesus died first. 
And not long thereafter, they came and broke the legs of the two thieves so they would die. The moment of death, think what happened to these thieves. One, no doubt, went to that place that Peter calls Tartaru, where those who are not in God's kingdom are awaiting the final judgment. But think of the other thief. When he died, Jesus was waiting. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome. He walked them into his paradise. What a beautiful thing to think about. We're only given fleeting glimpses into what Jesus did between his crucifixion and resurrection. First Peter tells us that he announced to those in prison, the spirits who were in chains, so to speak, what was ahead for them. But think of this. Paul said for me, to die is to be with Christ. Tonight, if we bring to mind our loved ones who are followers of Jesus and have gone ahead, they with this thief are in paradise with the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote, I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the third statement, somewhat surprising. Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. When God was ready to send his son to be born of a virgin, he did not just choose Mary, he chose a family. John the Baptist, for example, was Jesus' second cousin. James and John, the apostles, were Jesus' first cousin, their mother, Salome, Zebedee's wife, being Mary's sister. Here's an interesting thing. We never find any record in Scripture of Jesus ever calling Mary mother. He always used the respectful term woman, (laughs) which in that culture would be the same thing as we would do in our culture when we say to a lady, ma'am. There is a restaurant where I eat breakfast several mornings a week, and there is a waitress named Sally. And when I first started going there, I kept saying, yes, ma'am, thank you, ma'am, to Sally. And one day she exploded to me and said, don't call me ma'am. I said, Sally, all of my life I've called gentlemen, sir, and ladies, ma'am. She said, I'm not a lady. (laughs) But ma'am, you see, respectful, gune, that's that's how Jesus addressed his mother. But here... He spoke to John and said, John, I want you to view your Aunt Mary as your mother. Mary, view John as your son. He'll take care of you. 
There are only two events in which Jesus seemed to think much of himself. One was in the garden when he cried out, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The other is on the cross, and when he cried out, I thirst. But every other record we have of Jesus, his thought was always of others. And here on the cross it was so. He thought of his mother. Jesus was faithful in fulfilling earthly responsibility even in the time of death. As Paul wrote to Timothy, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. To make some return to their parents, this is acceptable in the sight of God. Anyone who does not provide for his own, especially for those his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The point is, family should take care of family. And we need to fulfill our earthly responsibility. The fourth statement. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. According to Matthew and Mark, darkness came upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. That would have been from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. And so Jesus hung upon the cross for three hours in broad daylight and the mocking and all was all of the torment was taking place. And then it seemed after three hours, God began to put a veil over it all. And at the very height of the sun in the sky, darkness spread over all the land as if God were creating a veil to cloak what was happening in the midst of all the revilers. God responded from heaven at the time of Jesus' baptism when the dove came. He responded at the time of the transfiguration in which Christ was glorified and responded here by bringing darkness upon the land. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Indeed, the physical torture was horrible, but the spiritual torture for Christ would even have been greater when this pure being who hated sin had to become sin in our stead. Our redemption was purchased through a painful sacrifice that really we can't begin to grasp. The fifth statement, I thirst. Not an unusual request for someone who's close to death, but especially by one who had been through what Jesus had been through. Notice that 
When they were getting ready to drive the nails into Jesus' hand, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. There was a charitable group of Jewish women who came to crucifixions and offered this potion which would dull the senses so initially the pain would not be so great, and Jesus refused it. He did not want anything to dull what he had to go through for our sins. But now he cries out, I thirst. When he did that, the Roman soldiers began to mock, King of Jews, he's thirsty. One person quickly grabbed a sponge and put sour wine upon it to touch to his lips. And someone tried to stop him. Don't do that. Let's see if Elijah comes to help him. When he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some thought he was calling for Elijah. And the man said, Well, what I'm trying to do is to help him live a little longer just to see if Elijah comes. The lesson for us is this. Jesus was not play-acting. As a human with a normal human body, he suffered. And the sixth statement. Some separate this into two, but really it would have been one. Spoken quickly together, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Mark says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He doesn't tell us what Jesus said. But John and Luke both tell us, he said, it is finished. These aren't the usual words of a dying man who might say, I am finished. But Jesus said, it is finished. My purpose for coming to the earth has been accomplished. And that being done, there was no reason to linger any longer. He did not use the miraculous power he could have used, but he died for our sins. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he was in the wilderness, Satan tried to tempt him to use divine power. If you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. Jesus refused. Let me take you to the pinnacle of the temple and jump off. And as the people see you come down unharmed, they'll realize who you are and worship you. Had Jesus done that, you and I would go to hell. He refused to use any divine, miraculous power to avoid the cross. He was in control. 
when the soldiers came to the garden. You'll recall Peter whipped out a sword, and Jesus said, Put your sword away. Do you not think that it, if I wanted to, I could call six legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels to come and deliver me. He went the whole route, suffering by choice in obedience to God the Father. He did it because of love, love for us and love for the Father. It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. Tonight, the cross is empty because the work of our salvation is complete. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. For sinners crucified, O holy sacrifice, behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb. O Father God, we seek to behold the Lamb. Again, it is hard for us to look at the cross. We do so seeking in some measure to grasp this expression of love toward us. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. Behold the Lamb.